Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode I invite on a new guest to help me unpack an influential piece of writing from the past in order to make it more accessible in the present. Today we're looking at The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. Huxley was a British novelist, screenplay writer, philosopher, and public intellectual who was kicking around during the first half of the 20th century. He's probably most famous for his 1932 dystopian novel, Brave New World, but this essay definitely made its mark in history as well. It was written in 1953 and influenced many of the prominent thinkers in the psychedelic movement in the 1960s. Today helping me unpack this essay was Nikki Johnson. We had a bunch of fun unpacking Huxley's thoughts on the problem of language, the reducing valve theory of consciousness, peak versus plateau experiences, the terror of witnessing God directly, how the artist, the genius, and the schizophrenic experience the world, the ethics of the contemplative life, the human desire to transcend self-conscious selfhood, and finally, Huxley's conception of enlightenment. This was a truly mind-expanding conversation for me, and I hope that our discussion has the same effect on you, or at the very least, helps you understand these ideas better. So, get comfortable and enjoy my conversation with Nikki on The Doors of Perception. Welcome. Thank you so much, Zach. Yeah, I'm excited. You just, uh, we just got some tea. You uh, shared with me your model of consciousness. Right. No small feet. (laughs) Yeah, no small feet. I was impressed. You said like, what, like 15 years of of work into that. Synthesizing everything I've read in many different areas. Yeah, it's pretty exciting to have gotten to that point. Very impressive. And I'm sure we'll touch on a lot of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what's perfect about this, the mm -hmm. timing of it. Yeah. um, And and the fact that it aligns so well with with what was going on with uh, Aldous Huxley and his experience in Doors of Perception. Yeah. Well, I thought of you immediately because I was was thinking about this piece for some reason and was thinking about doing it and was thinking like, all right, who would be good? And you had told me you were doing some, like working in a lab studying consciousness out in California for the last couple of years. And I know we had talked about psychedelics and stuff in the past. So I was like, oh, Nikki would be perfect. Done. And yes. Yeah, done. <laughs> we're like, put it on the calendar. Absolutely. And we yeah. made it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Had you read this before or was this your first experience with it? I think I'd read excerpts from mm. it, but not yeah. all the way through. So okay. yeah, it was a good experience for me as well. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like maybe, I feel like it's probably one of the most famous psychedelic trips of all time. For like sure, it, yeah. yes. All the hippies in the 60s read it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was very influential to like Timothy Leary and all kind of Ram Dass, all those guys. For sure. Um, so maybe yeah, we can talk maybe about like the context of the piece, I guess. So Aldous Huxley was already, he was 59 when he first took mescaline. Uh, which I was surprised to learn that because I had always thought that he was much younger. Like when I read it the first time, I had imagined him as like a young man, but he was 59, you know, tripping for the first time. And I, I'm kind of glad that he was, you know, in his older age and seasoned because I don't know that he would have gotten the same kind of insights if he was like a yeah. 22 year old or we something, did you know? Have- 
have kind of a mystic mindset. He was really into Vedanta, which is a branch of Hinduism mm. and uh, Eastern religions. So he kind of had that that basis already. So maybe and yeah. and a lot of his ideas uh, aligned really well with uh, with it. But right, like he was already kind of on the, the path. Exactly. And exactly. I thought it was funny learning this. He so he actually reached out to this guy who what was his name um humphrey osmond humphrey osmond yes yeah who's a british uh psychiatrist yes. who was studying mescaline at the time and huxley like wrote him a letter and was just like i want to be a guinea pig to to study this <laughs> yeah i love that phrase the yeah. most willing <laughs> guinea pig <laughs> the most willing he's like pick me because this was this was yeah pre you know pre psychedelic 60s this was like you couldn't just you know go to a concert and like get some mescaline or get some lsd like it was much much harder to come by it was only really being studied in like laboratories right um so that was interesting to learn as well that, yeah yeah that, yeah yeah but i mean used for thousands of years by the native americans and then finally synthesized i guess in 1919 by a chemist so. yeah, yeah totally yeah. well yeah which is important to so mescaline which is not um Maybe a lot of listeners aren't familiar with. It's definitely not as kind of famous as like psychedelic mushrooms or LSD, but it's the psychoactive chemical in peyote, the peyote cactus and the San Pedro cactus, right? Which, like you mentioned, has been used by Native Americans and indigenous Mexican people for thousands of years Correct. in like religious ceremonies. Yes. So this is by no means like a new drug it just kind of knew that uh it was like you said synthesized in 1919 correct yeah well cool the first thing that the first kind of big theme that i saw him talking about was kind of this inherent problem that language presents and that there's kind of a problem anytime we are trying to communicate our experience to another person the way he puts it, he says, quote, we live together, we act on and react to one another, but always and in all circumstances, we are by ourselves. And he says, by its very nature, every embodied spirit is doomed to suffer and enjoy in solitude. And I took that to mean kind of like even when we are having a experience with another person, we are still having a unique subjective experience. And if we are then to try to communicate that to them we're forced to use language which is you know pretty darn good t tool that mankind has figured out but it's still it's still not as um i guess accurate as having that spirit experience directly it is kind of mind-blowing to think about how it developed and how we are able to express abstract concepts mm. and because it's all it all comes down to agreements that this word means this thing yeah and so that we've gotten to the point where we can have a you know a very intelligent conversation about very abstract ideas is is quite a an achievement <laughs> yeah. for humanity yeah if you think about it so yeah absolutely and he says um at another point kind of like academics and the like you know literate people of the world have this like fixation with just symbolic forms of learning like i.e reading and writing versus the kind of more direct 
experiencing things firsthand. Yeah, I feel like yeah. goodwill hunting kind of mm. embodied that theme. Yeah. Yeah. Where get out of the get out of book land and actually experience life. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Or there's the um we actually did a Robert Louis Stevenson podcast and he said something like, uh, books are great in their own right, but they're a bloody uh or they're a mighty bloodless substitute for real life. Yeah. And I think, from what I understand, Huxley would probably echo that as yeah. well. And he, Personally, yeah. I love the combo. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I've Absolutely. Travel the world <laughs> reading, which is fantastic. So, yeah, 40 countries. Oh, wow. Yes. You are like probably 30 more than I have. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I find the most interesting people are those that pursue both as well. Yes. That have a wealth of personal experience and have also are also well read and that's what i enjoy as well yeah that's why we connect yeah. yeah well and so and he kind of you know criticizes a lot of philosophers and academics as just doing the kind of learning right. uh you know book learning type of thing and he says like basically like i'm the only one out here who's actually taken the psychedelic and like <laughs> knows what this thing is all about yes and off of that theme as well, he kind of thinks that we can only really understand each other if we have had a similar experience. Like if I'm telling you about an experience, I had, um, I don't know, skydiving and you've never skydove, like you, you can kind of relate it to what you know, but you will kind of still not really know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it is on my bucket list. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually not done it either. It was just a random example. And this theme comes up a lot, and he he relates it to this kind of like spiritual experience or psychedelic experience in that like when you are hearing about somebody's spiritual experience or experience, you know, witnessing God or pure consciousness, and you've never had that experience for yourself— it can kind of sound like mumbo jumbo, like hogwash. And the only way to actually understand what that person has experienced is to have experienced something like it yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. He says, quote, it seems virtually certain that I shall never know what it feels like to be Sir John Falstaff or Joe Lewis. On the other hand, it has always seemed to me possible that through hypnosis, for example, or auto-hypnosis by means of systematic mes- meditation, or else by taking the appropriate drug, I might so change my ordinary mode of consciousness as to be able to know from the inside what the visionary, the medium, even the mystic were talking about. And he kind of does experience this. He, he at one point talks about this essay that he re- read by this uh, Buddhist monk, Suzuki. And he says... This is like during his trip, he says, and I remembered then a passage I had read, one of Suzuki. He says, it had been when I read it only a vague, pregnant piece of nonsense. Now it was all as clear as day, as evident as Euclid. Yeah, the fact that the interaction with, I I feel like I should probably introduce the primary, secondary, tertiary from my model. Sure. I'm going to be using that language the entire time. Please do. Yeah. Yeah, So it's part of the multi-sphere model of consciousness, which I am, uh, which I've just put together slides for. Um, So 
the way it breaks down is primary consciousness is uh, the, the domain in which everything exists as a wave function. So uh, the totality of existence as a quantum state. And mm. so um, also referred to as the universal wave function. So as I showed you in the slides, you know, there were, uh, there were at least four papers, but I'm sure many, many more. Uh, but the first guy who wrote about this was Hugh Everett, um, who uh, wrote his master's thesis on it in the 50s and then wrote a shorter version and a longer version. Um, but basically, this was the foundation of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Mm. So uh, the one where at every choice point, you know, you get a forked set of paths, um, this uncollapsed wave function. Yeah. And so um, in this domain, everything exists all at once and the analogy that i give is it's kind of like video game code where uh you know everything that could ever happen in that game is there in the code everything that has happened is happening now if you're playing it will happen ever mm, yeah all contained in that code that's what the universal wave function or what I'm calling primary consciousness in the model is like secondary consciousness would be your own individualized experience mm -hmm. of uh, just pieces of primary consciousness and the way this works. And, and just to give everybody background, I've been working at a lab and um, at UCSB yeah. and focused on a paper called general resonance theory. It's an electromagnetic field theory of consciousness. And essentially it boils down to the basis of consciousness is shared resonance across different physical scales. And so um, we each in our own secondary consciousness through shared resonance, pull aspects of the primary from the all, from everything that exists into our experience mm. by uh, through synchrony in oscillations. And then tertiary consciousness is the interaction of one or more secondary consciousnesses. Um, so we have uh, enough shared uh, oscillations that we can have a shared experience in space and time. I feel like those terms are going to come up in what yeah. I say. So. No, that's great. Okay. And and maybe we can try to map those to some of uh, the language that oh, uh, Huxley it's everywhere. uses. Because yeah. this is one of the things we were talking about before we started recording is that one of the problems in talking about these, you know, like non-dualistic terms is that Everybody kind of has a different word for more or less the same thing. There Absolutely. might be some little nuances, but, uh, you know, each kind of thinker prefers their own term for God or, you know, yeah. what Jung would call like the numinous. Huxley kind of calls this like mind at large. Yeah, and so the primary consciousness or primary would be, con uh, consciousness, yeah, yeah. Um, implicate order, zero point field. Uh, Perusa and Hinduism, uh, Sunyata and Buddhism, yeah. uh, holotropic state and uh, for Stanislav Grof and psychotherapy, mm -hmm. right? Maybe yeah. uh, Brahman and Hinduism. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's uh, kind of what we we're talking about earlier. It's kind of a problem of language because we're kind of by definition trying to use a word to describe something that by definition is ineffable. Yes. So <laughs> you kind of run up against that problem. Yeah, it's something beyond space and time. It's something beyond the senses. And mm. so how do you put that into words? Uh, yeah. Often very difficult. Yeah. Well, and so 
in Huxley's terminology isn't even really consistent throughout. At some point, he uses the the term mind at large. At other term, times, he uses uh, the Godhead or the um, the Dharma body of the Buddha or isness. So they're well, all. Well, he kind is of, a writer. So yeah, he's he is a writer. A little he's, poetic yeah. <laughs> the writer in him was just like, I, I can't just use the same word four times in the same paragraph. Suchness, suchness. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, would it get uh, monotonous after a while? <laughs> right. But I think it is important to, to clarify that up front. Maybe we can just pick one term to refer to that concept. Do, do you want to use the? This is what I was trying yeah. to do in my model. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's why I threw it out there. Yeah, so you uh, primary consciousness, right? Yeah, let's use when we're talking about or primary suchness, consciousness, yeah, or yeah. Godhead, or, or mind at yeah. large, right? Yeah. Right? Right? <laughs> we'll just hyphenate every time we uh, primary, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> primary, <laughs> and we might as well go into his his theory about the kind of reducing valve theory of consciousness because this is really, you know, we're calling we're calling this um, this non dual state of consciousness primary consciousness. And we're calling what a lot of us consider normal waking consciousness to be secondary. Mm-hmm. So that's already kind of, um, I think, flipping flipping things. Because I think most people probably think of like, oh, when you're on a psychedelic. That this would be primary and that would be right, secondary. Like when you're on a psychedelic, that is an altered state of consciousness. Whereas the, as primary suggests, that that is actually more of the whole picture and what we experience in quote normal waking consciousness is kind of a filtered version of that total consciousness well said absolutely mm. yeah and if you think of it in terms of size scales uh, our secondary is just a teeny teeny <laughs> little drop in the ocean of the primary right and your own individualized experience of it as well mm. so you have your own secondary i have my own secondary and that's a mind-blowing concept too yeah yeah, absolutely. Well, so this, what is called the the reducing valve theory of consciousness, was first put forward by the French philosopher uh, Henry Bergson, and Huxley kind of lays it out in this essay. So I'm just going to read this, which he kind of breaks down this this theory of consciousness. It says, "quote The suggestion is that the function of the brain and nervous system and sense organs." is in the main eliminative and not productive. Each person is at each moment capable of remembering all that has ever happened to him and of perceiving everything that is happening everywhere in the universe. The function of the brain and nervous system is to protect us from being overwhelmed and confused by this mass of largely useless, irrelevant knowledge by shutting out most of what we should otherwise perceive or remember at any moment and leaving only that very small and special selection which is likely to be practical and useful and then he says according to such a theory each one of us is potentially mind at large but in so far as we are animals our business is at all costs to survive to make a biological survival possible mind at large has to be funneled through the reducing valve of the brain and nervous system what comes out at the other end is a measly trickle of the kind of consciousness which will help us stay alive on the surface of this particular planet. Well, this is absolutely consistent with the story that I was telling you mm. about uh, my experience with 5-MeO-DMT okay. last year. So, yeah. right, pivotal moment in my life. And that's what they say uh, for most people who take this. It's six to eight times stronger than the DMT in ayahuasca. Oh, wow. And so uh, is they that said- the, um, the, the 
the frog venom exactly okay exactly yeah. so um la- they said it lasted eight minutes to me it felt like less than 60 seconds and so uh initially took it then looked at the guy's face who had given it to me and all of a sudden it was pixelated but mm. the pixels had depth to them so they wow. were voxels i guess and they were all kind of wiggling and then he had me go under a blanket so i could have a the dark environment to experience this thing yeah. which then felt to me like being on a train and going through a tunnel and then all of a sudden it was I, I assume every little micro movement of my eye was a completely different scene and it just got faster and faster wow. and then it felt like everything was absorbed into me and uh they said that ego dissolution would happen during this experience i'll tell you there was no time to consider the nature mm. of one's experience during this thing i mean it was so fa- and it was just it was overwhelming, overwhelming. and so exactly to the point of the paragraph that you just read it gave me an appreciation that i didn't have before because i was i was looking for answers and i had been into a lot of the mm. eastern religions and a lot of the um uh you know the new age type material as well sure and um where it seemed to be about getting to the primary consciousness no, you don't want to do that. It's completely okay. It's over. It's too much. Yeah. It gave me a super appreciation for what we have here in secondary consciousness where we can lay out things in space and time and create meaningful experiences mm. for ourselves. Mm. So, yeah, that was huge. Yeah. Well, and I love, I, thank you for sharing. That's, that's so, yeah, that's so, so relevant. And that I, I like thinking about this in ev- evolutionary terms as, as he is kind of s- saying and let like, the process of natural selection, we only evolve and adapt things that are going to benefit our survival and reproduction. And so if we are this, you know, ape who is just completely experiencing the totality of consciousness and, you know, we're just enamored by a a leaf in front of us and we're just, you know, contemplating existence, like who's to say a a lion's not going to come up behind us and just eat us exactly well, you know, yeah. so it would also be a liability in that as he mentions throughout his experience like his will to do certain mundane tasks that he would deem important in this kind of normal waking consciousness or secondary consciousness he just kind of in this state of mind is just like what's the point like why would i even think about you know paying the bills or something when i'm just like one with the universe yes yes <laughs> stanislav graf is one of my favorites and he mm. talks about uh the use of psychedelics in psychotherapy and okay. he, he makes a similar point too that um yeah being in the holotropic state as he defines it so this would be primary consciousness yeah or, or, or a sense of that anyway you're mm. not actually in that domain um but yeah probably not the best time when you're at the at the airport or whatever you know like flying a plane yeah trying to get shit done right yeah right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pound it out. Right. Yeah. No, you want to be in hylotropic state, which is his yeah. word for secondary. Yeah. Which is interesting because yeah. there's like also the kind of microdosing craze that had kind of taken over Silicon Valley, which was mainly about kind of productivity and creativity. So a lot of people were using these compounds like LSD in uh, very small doses to kind of be more productive. 
Um, so that's kind of ironic that, you know, if they were to bump up the dosage, they would just be like, what is the point of, you know, this startup <laughs> that I'm spending all of my waking hours doing? Nice. Or, but, but not in, a, I don't think he's t- talking necessarily about like, um, the, this experience makes him nihilistic as much as it just kind of reset his priorities absolutely you can see so much more yeah Mm. again that size difference between the teeny little drop of secondary versus the massive uh, possibilities there in primary right yeah but funny you bring up microdosing it's it's never been uh something i don't know that i wanted to do because Mm. the body just adapts to any level you know tonic adaptation so uh, you know it'll adjust to whatever you feed it and then that'll become the new norm so i I like to personally just blast off sometimes (laughs) and and integrate those experiences for for spirituality purposes yeah right on for sure for (laughs) sure so going back to the reducing valve yes the idea that the brain's main function is to cut out a lot of these stimuli he thinks that the that mescaline basically reduces the amount of glucose that can get to the brain so basically the brain is just not able to function like it normally would to filter all this out i don't know if there's any science behind that i know yeah um, because you don't really um in in these papers for example you know robin carhart harris is Mm. probably the leading psychedelic researcher in the world and um not a lot of discussion of of glucose yeah uh, in those papers mainly what unites psychedelics is a serotonin 2a receptor which is Mm. uh associated with chronic stress okay and so I can't remember if this is an, an, an explicit point that was made in um, these papers or just something that I kind of intuited, but um, the idea that the reducing valve is opened through this chronic stress receptor, uh, the thought that I have is, you know, the body ordinarily filters out a lot of this information, which is not necessary to survival. And it got that way probably over time, just pruning more and more of this info that we don't need um, so that we can just focus on our day-to-day job. So ordinarily we're filtering out Mm. this information, but... Uh, It may get to the point where we're so stressed that the body goes, okay, let's open that door because there might be something in there that helps us. Mm, You know what I mean? Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. Have you heard of um, reticular activating system? Yeah. Right. Which is, I think it's a similar idea of like, we are constantly bombarded by so much more stimuli than is useful and relevant Mm -hmm. to kind of the task at hand. Absolutely. That we are already filtering out so much of it if you're a little kid looking for waldo in a where's waldo you are filtering out your brain is filtering out everything that is not a red and white man or Mm -hmm. not a red and white man but a a man with a red and white shirt yeah and where's waldo (laughs) yeah the same the same way that like i don't know if you're in a singles bar and you go out for a drink on a saturday night you will just naturally unconsciously filter out 80% of the people in that bar who are not the gender that you're attracted to, the age that you're attracted to, you know, that this kind of filtering happens, you know, in our 
normal waking consciousness. So I like this theory that it's basically just kind of an extension of the reticular activating system. Yeah, we have the salience network as well. So all these different resting state networks, there's seven or eight, depending who you mm. read. Um, but the salience one kind of points out what's important. So, so that's interesting. true too. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and he talks about how for most of us, our brain is more or less filtering out most of this primary consciousness but there are certain individuals who the their brain filters out less so he talks a lot about um artists as being a kind of a branch of people who maybe are more tapped into this primary consciousness all the time yeah, so there's two papers actually uh, that come to mind that yeah. um, sort of relate to this. That nested observer windows paper that I was telling you about, um, mm. my friend Justin Riddle, and then Jonathan Schooler, who runs the the lab that I've been volunteering for. Um, but yeah, so um, they have uh, as part of their model. Um, comes down to well they've defined it as alpha oscillations now based on the the information that i was looking at even it, just this week it may come down to that uh one over f uh frequency time and uh, or fractal time or pink noise or whatever mm. uh determining the speed with which um we are able to integrate information but anyway as part of their model they talk about so this refresh rate for yeah. alpha oscillations it and it's variable among different people so um there's this one experiment called the flicker fusion experiment okay. yeah. where uh, i think they were flashing um you know a light for people and there's a certain frequency where it just looks like it's always on and mm. but it varies based on um alpha speed for for that individual and so yeah, well, yeah. so that that would be a potentially a scientific explanation for what wow. he's talking about that's that's really interesting absolutely that, yeah, that yeah there probably is um yeah, yeah some scientific basis for some of this stuff for sure that's well, what i've been doing yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, and he says, uh, he says, this is from the essay, quote, what the rest of us see only under the influence of mescaline, the artist is congenially equipped to see all the time. His perception is not limited to what is biologically or socially useful. Um, and it made me think of uh, this kind of anecdote. It might be apocryphal. I don't know if it actually happened, but Salvador Dali, the expressionist painter. Love him. Or yeah. expressionist? I'm not the surrealist surrealist painter thank yeah. you who um was once asked if he took drugs because his paintings are so psychedelic and he responded Swite suggested yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he responded by saying i am drugs yes <laughs> so i i love that and i think that kind of maps onto this idea is that dali was probably one of these people who was just hit maybe you know his brain was filtering out less of the um primary consciousness true and yeah. uh as part of these papers as well uh they talk about how um people who both have quote-unquote mental health disorders some of them and mm. then what we see uh, through their use of psychedelics there's more functional complexity more more functional uh connectivity that is entropic mm. or disordered Okay. So, um, but again, you know, it, it comes down to filtering in information from the primary that most people are, are not integrating. So. Well, yeah. And he, he does, he talks about like um, 
schizophrenics as yes, well as yes. being maybe a, a class of people who filter out less of this primary consciousness. Right. It's just about learning how to functionally integrate that, which we were talking about as part of my Yeah, my and, and that's yeah. kind of the, the problem he sees with... Um, he says, maybe this will this will kind of highlight it. He says, quote, the schizophrenic is like a man permanently under the influence of mescaline and therefore unable to shut off the experience of a reality which he is not holy enough to live with, uh, which he cannot explain away because it is the most stubborn of primary facts in which because it never permits him to look at the world with merely human eyes scares him into interpreting its unremitting strangeness its burning intensity of significance as the manifestations of human or even cosmic malevolence. Well, I'm reminded of that Terrence McKenna quote that I read you as well, where mm. the shaman swims in the same ocean as the schizophrenic. The only difference is the shaman has thousands upon thousands of years of sh sanctioned technique um, mm. in figuring out how to integrate this information in a functional way, you know. And so in traditional societies, people with quote unquote schizophrenic tendencies were told you are special, you yeah. have unique abilities and you figure out how to do this. You will guide our society and its most valuable decisions. Dude, if you can pull information about what has happened, is happening, will happen, that's very useful, but yeah. you got to figure out how to do that functionally, and, and that's where we're, we're stuck. And I think um, there's this neurodivergence movement now where um, instead of necessarily kind of looking at certain conditions and saying, oh, that's a problem, that's a problem, that's a problem, and trying to suppress everybody back into this range of neurotypical, as it's called, mm. instead sort of looking at, okay, you've got some challenges, but it also comes with some strengths as well, because you're probably pulling in signals that most people are not. Sure. Uh, for example, with autism, you know, you getting extra signals that don't really make sense in terms of the mm. five senses, but you also often are really good at, you know, deep work and, and, uh, you know, amazing little specialties and things. Yeah, absolutely. The ability to focus on something well, very like complex. You, like you mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of um, kind of like hunter-gatherer communities would have reverence for the people with schizophrenia and, and kind of see them as having like this divine connection or, or ability. Like uh, there's a book, uh, Black Elk Speaks, which is kind of about about this as well. But I think what Huxley is getting at here is like a lot of them haven't been able to integrate it. And like we mentioned earlier, this pure consciousness or primary consciousness can be extremely overwhelming, especially to somebody who is, um, you know, younger or less kind of, uh, cognitively, spiritually, emotionally matured. And what he was saying is like a lot of schizophrenics will kind of take this onslaught of stimuli coming out them and, uh, kind of represent it as being like kind of evil or malevolent. I do know someone with schizophrenia yeah. and yeah, um, yeah, kind of paranoid mentality has, has sort of a, an underlying tone to, to a lot of his experiences. Mm. Yeah, which, which is a, an unfortunate piece. There's also the connection between, I know that some psychedelics can trigger schizophrenia in somebody who is kind of genetically 
prone to it predisposed predisposed yeah. to it yeah. so yeah this there seems to be some some kind of correlation there but yeah yeah, yeah that has been shown yeah yeah let's see we talked about the artist the schizophrenic he also says like the genius is yeah. somebody who um and this has kind of made me think of like when people say there's a fine line between like genius and madness absolutely and, yeah. yes yeah <laughs> Often in the same individual. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, somebody like uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. I mean, he <laughs> he definitely walked the, walked that line. Yeah. Well, even and, even someone like Nikola Tesla, who I love, but, yeah. you know, with the 369 and, uh, you know, it, it, things had to be in those numbers. And he, uh, he had a bunch of pigeons <laughs> where he was living in his uh, hotel. They were his friends. <laughs> oh, man. I didn't, I yeah, didn't know that. That's, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's a very quirky guy. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. Well, I was going to say, we talked about earlier how this pure consciousness or primary consciousness can just be extremely overwhelming, especially to somebody who's not kind of prepared to witness it. Right. And he talks a little bit here about um, what can happen to the unprepared when they're experiencing this. Uh, so he says, quote, the literature of religious experience abounds in references to the pains and terrors of overwhelming those who have come too suddenly face to face with some manifestation of the mysterium tremendum, uh, which I think is just another kind of term for this right. primary consciousness. Mm -hmm. In theological language, this fear is due to the incompatibility between man's egotism and the divine purity between man's self-aggravated separateness and the infinity of God. Yeah, the difference between secondary and primary. Mm -hmm. Right. And that when we were in this secondary or kind of normal waking consciousness, we have this very vivid feeling of being a self separate from other. We kind of see the world more or less dualistically. I am me. You are you. This microphone is this microphone. Yes. Whereas under this primary consciousness that those lines start to blur and that is threatening to the ego that is threatening to this conception of the self. And that can lead to just like crippling fear um, for a lot of people. Yeah, and, which is why that happens with the magic mushrooms for, for some the paranoia. Yeah, I've and I have had uh, when, when I did uh psilocybin uh, mushrooms yeah i remember feeling like i was dying wow okay. and it was a very scary experience and i remember telling a friend of mine who was older and you know much more had much more experience with taking psychedelics and whatnot and he's like you know what that was when you felt like you were dying he's like that was your ego that was your ego death and i, I did experience the kind of ego death and that's kind of what he's pointing to here is that like a lot of the religious literature points to this same kind of um, fear and terror mm -hmm. that people can experience when kind of witnessing this primary consciousness mm -hmm. or as it is often termed in religious language, God. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to, to draw. And I know there's like, there's a lot of baggage with with just that word god but i think it's important to point out that a lot of times when people are talking about seeing god or the godhead they 
in some instances are referring to the same thing that people who are talking about primary consciousness are referring to. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, Roberto Sagioli's model of psychosynthesis is mm. really helpful here. So okay. when you tap into um, the the collective unconscious, or, or I guess in his model, it would all just be the unconscious, um, he divides it into three layers. So the lower unconscious, which is kind of the id type yeah. stuff, uh, middle unconscious, which is more uh, just subconscious processes that we use, and then higher consciousness is, you know, spiritual aspirations and stuff. But you can't you can't just selectively tap into the higher one, right? You <laughs> yeah. get the whole bag. It yeah. comes all together. It's the universal wave function, so it contains everything. Mm. And so that's why I think in some of these experiences, you know, it can go either way for people because... Totally. Yeah. Well, and I I was actually thinking of um, the Bhagavad Gita. Yes, love it. There's a chapter in the, in the Gita called The Cosmic Vision where Arjuna witnesses krishna in its kind of most exalted form yes so this was um yeah chapter 11 of the gita quote krishna the master of of yoga revealed to arjuna his most exalted lordly form he appeared with an infinite number of faces ornamented by heavenly jeweled displaying unending miracles in the countless weapons of his power Clothed, clothed in celestial garments and covered with garlands, sweet-smelling with heavenly fragrances, he showed himself as the infinite Lord, the source of all wonders, whose face is everywhere. If a thousand suns were to rise in the heavens at the same time, the blaze of their light would resemble the splendor of the Supreme Spirit. And then kind of Arjuna's reaction to this <laughs> says quote the multitudes of gods demigods and demons are all overwhelmed by the sight of you O mighty lord at the sight of your myriad eyes and mouths arms and legs stomachs and fearful teeth i and the entire universe shake in terror i love that you read that 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 is what that piece means for me yeah, exactly what I was just talking about with the that the whole bag comes with it. The That's good, kind of bad, like witnessing, the ugly. Yeah. witnessing this uh, that um, primary consciousness directly. Right. Or yeah, seeing, and all those different levels. Yeah. yeah. Or in religious terms, seeing God directly. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a part of a kind of um, this like spiritual awakenings that people have that is not often talked about is that there can be a terrifying aspect of yeah. them. Yeah, um, for that five mao experience, which was which was yeah. pivotal, and I'm so glad that I had that. That was mm. a it was a turning point. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, just so yeah, overwhelmingly too much that it was terrifying. Yes. Well, yeah, and like Krishna <laughs> scares the shit out of Arjuna. Yes, and I think it's also important to to point out that Krishna is the kind of symbolic representation of this thing that we're talking about. Right. God. Yes. Pure consciousness. Yes. Um, nature yeah. as well, and. Spinoza's version of it yeah mm. which yeah when when Einstein was asked whether he believed in God he said oh, I believe in Spinoza's God so <laughs> synonymous <laughs> yeah. with nature yeah right. yeah yeah um let's see he also talks a little bit about the kind of morality of the contemplative person mm-hmm. and I think he's kind of mentioning this in terms of like all right some people might look at some somebody like a monk 
uh, who has kind of shut themselves off from the working life and is just in a monastery meditating and kind of say like, come on, man, like, who are you helping? <laughs> you know, that that's kind of a, a thing that gets brought and he's kind of responding to that a little bit here. And he says, he says, quote, half at least of all morality is negative and consists in keeping out of mischief. And then he says, the one-sided contemplative leaves undone many things that he ought to do, but to make up for it, he refrains from doing a host of things he ought not to do. So, you know, he's saying like, all right, well, at least that Buddhist monk is, uh, you know, he's not like robbing banks and like lighting shit on fire <laughs> in that like a lot of what makes somebody a good and you know you look at like the ten commandments most of them are like thou shall not do oh, this the old testament to me mm. is just it's so brutish <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah, it's, it's mostly it's different the, time, the yeah. but the morality is, is a lot i think what his point is it's 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 very much framed in terms of the negative yeah. and that the moral person at least in some framings is the person who is not getting into mischief is not you know, yeah. sinning for me whatnot. too. One thing that comes to mind is just, I mean, uh, reading the Bhagavad and, um, mm. you know, the fact that this is a multi-life game as well. I mean, there mm. are very important lives where we're spending most of our time in, in, in solitary kind of spiritual development. These are really important mm. lives, um, to get all the way through uh, at some point to individuation. Sure. Well, so. well, and he, he says that like the, the person who has spent a great deal of time in contemplation or has kind of had one of these mystical experiences is able to take that experience and communicate it to others or to kind of, you know, pass the torch, so to speak. So that if, you know, we'd use the monk in the monastery example, that if they attain enlightenment, that they will then kind of then be able to return the boon and that's kind of like what the buddha did right the buddha didn't and just even, like even even the little mini steps along the way as well i mean yeah. we're all we're all part of that this is part of tertiary consciousness in the model so mm. we are all part of these collective consciousnesses as well so the fact that that guy's pulling his weight in terms of raising his vibration expanding his consciousness is helping everybody else you know totally so, right totally yeah one of the reasons i meditate is like Mm-hmm. yes i do it for selfish reasons it, it makes me happier it makes me calmer clears my anxiety but i also feel like it benefits other people in my life that i meditate because i'm able to be patient with them i'm able to be kinder to them i'm less reactive so and this is perfect i feel like this mm. is the point of life trying to find where you can do what you love and and benefit others at the same time that's a sweet spot so yeah bravo yeah well and this kind of ties into his conception of enlightenment so i found this really interesting huxley says quote i am not so foolish as to equate what happens under the influence of mescaline or of any drug prepared or in the future prepared with the realization of the end and ultimate purpose of human life enlightenment the beatific vision so he is saying like, okay, well, what I experienced on mescaline, like this experience, the spiritual experience that he had was not enlightenment. And I think it, he's saying it's not enlightenment because it was not sustained or integrated. Ooh, 
Well, Maslow has two different terms for this. So mm. peak versus plateau experiences. Oh, interesting. Peak would be the the temporary ones where, yay, I think I found it. Kind oh. of like a experience on right. mescaline. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or or in meditation or a number of different types. Running a marathon. Maybe. Right. Yeah. Whereas sure. plateau is, you know, not your, the Buddha. And the Buddha, sustain right. it. Right. Well, yeah. and to capture that, he, he says, quote, to be enlightened is to be aware always of total reality in its imminent otherness to be aware of it and yet to remain in a condition to survive as an animal to think and feel as a human being to resort whenever expedient to systematic reasoning so this made me think of like yeah the the enlightened person is able to kind of be experiencing this total awareness and this um, primary consciousness while at the same time you know, holding a day job and, (laughs) and, you know, communicating with others and more or less has integrated it to the point where they, they are not just that person who is just completely overwhelmed or that person who is just transfixed by like a, a leaf or something. They're, they're actually able to, to integrate it. Right. Yeah. And help others with that information. Yeah. 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 So I, I thought that was definitely worth pointing out and, his kind of conception of enlightenment I thought was really interesting yeah for sure the the other thing he talks about is um this kind of need for self-transcendence that all people have in his view and he says quote the urge to escape from selfhood in the environment is in almost everyone almost all the time He says, the urge to transcend self-conscious selfhood is a principal appetite of the soul. And I don't think this is an original idea to him. I think a lot of other people have probably thought about about this. But he thinks that this is a lot of the reason why we abuse things like drugs and alcohol and even like tobacco is like, he he says like, either because our lives are so painful that we just kind of want to escape escape or they're so boring and monotonous that we want to escape through this Mm -hmm. and yeah he talks quite a bit about kind of like alcohol abuse tobacco abuse yeah i haven't Mm -hmm. i haven't had a drink since 2014 and i didn't even go into it thinking that i would quit i originally was just gonna uh take a three weeks (laughs) off and reset my tolerance but uh i got to the end of that period and i was like you know what you don't miss, miss it. it. Yeah. Hmm. And I could think so much clearer and I could suddenly run all the way around Central Park without running any more often. And also just the, the energy level. Mm. Um, yeah. They say that, you know, these substances, they poke holes in your aura. And I could, it was as though I could feel that. And mm. so um, one of my nervous habits when, when I had a lot of energy was to do this. And I started doing that during that period. And to I was kind like, of fidget wow. your hands. Yeah. 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 Huh. But I'm just retaining more energy. And so. That's cool. My yes. mom's kind of actually undergoing, like she's, she's kind of taking a break from alcohol as well. Yeah. Noticing some positive effects. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, well, and he says, you know, he's kind of talking about what has happened in the culture, and this was in the 1950s. He says, most of these modifiers of consciousness cannot now be taken except under doctor's orders or else illegally and a considerable risk. So he's talking about kind of the outlaw of most of these psychedelics at the time. And then he says, for unrestricted use, the West has permitted only alcohol and tobacco. 
All of the other chemical doors in the wall are labeled dope, and their unauthorized takers are fiends. So yeah, something that often gets talked about is like, you know, why is it that alcohol and tobacco are legal in this country, but I uh, know the hypocrisy of the whole thing. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 He doesn't really give any theories. I mean, some of the theories I've heard is like, basically it's whatever substances will lead to more work being done. Exactly. So sugar and caffeine. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I've heard that explanation and that fits. Yeah. Yeah. And that also, I mean, going back kind of the history of peyote and mescaline, I found it interesting to learn that when the Spanish conquistadors came over, they tried to suppress peyote and they tried to like basically strip it from the, the indigenous people of Mexico because and this was kind of Pollen's own hypothesis. He, he was thinking it was because it threatened Christianity and that these people were kind of experiencing God directly through this drug. And if you have people experiencing something directly for themselves, they won't really need a priest to go through and the, the church kind of becomes irrelevant at that point right direct experience yeah i see that yeah. as the difference between maybe spirituality and religion yeah it's a whole different kind of mindset sometimes yeah so there's been it's been an interesting kind of uh this kind of war on drugs didn't just start with nixon in the 60s like oh, it's no. been <laughs> it's been going on for quite some time yeah yeah and interesting. yeah yeah. Did you know MDMA? Uh, it's been around since 1919 or 1920. Like it's super old. Um, yeah. And then it was used in the 40s for psychotherapy for a while. Mm. And then 80s people were using it recreationally. And they <laughs> yeah. were like, okay, all right, we got to shut down the party. But but it's actually um, going to be rescheduled. So or they're thinking about doing that, taking it off the yeah. off the schedule and making it. I actually have a friend for- who is training to be a. Uh, mdma therapist oh the same one that you were talking about yeah okay uh-huh. cool yeah so she's she's in training for that right now nice. and um you know it looks like it's going to become legal yeah i mean everything's pointing right. that direction right yeah and they've already opened up clinics and a lot of the research around like its effects for people suffering ptsd is pretty yeah. remarkable yeah, so I took these yeah. um, neuroscience courses from Harvard through edX, and uh, oh, cool. yeah, a couple of them referenced, uh, or at least one segment talked about MDMA, uh, you know, psychotherapy, and we're talking about you know, the amazing benefits that yeah. they had seen. So yeah, it's tough to argue with. Yeah, right. It's tough to argue with the science. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That was kind of the end of my notes. Were there more spots that you want to hit on a little bit more or yeah Yeah, okay so um one thing that i did want to add from the model which i thought was really exciting is just thinking about individuation in the context of Mm. um, this model of consciousness that we've been uh sort of laying out with the primary secondary tertiary yeah um just thinking about the way that jung defined uh so the ego would be secondary consciousness the Mm. the conscious mind and then he had the personal ego which potentially is if we think about the universal wave function where everything, all the possibilities exist, could that be other versions of yourself that you have not experienced directly in this lifetime integrating (laughs) 
the lessons from those other timelines, which is really interesting. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, for collective unconscious, that would be uh, all these different pools of tertiary consciousness. So where mm. you're in, you know, the um, collective forms, different size groups, um, you know, your relationship with your family, uh, individuals, uh, but also groups and where you work and uh, your city, uh, the fact that you're part of humanity, integrating lessons from all mm. of these other lives as well and just doing that and and being able to tap into primary consciousness and opening you up to experience more and more in the form of memories um, from these other beings so yeah that's very interesting because it's like uh it, it, it doesn't only broaden your kind of horizons but there also might be some yeah, like you said, insights from like a past life or something that exactly. you are you're also integrating. Past lives. Yeah. Because they're all present. Yeah. Right. In that in realm. That, in that realm, right. Yeah. There is no there's no differentiation. Right. Well, and he he kind of ends this essay by, you know, talking about enlightenment, which we kind of spoke about, but he does say basically like even if we don't attain enlightenment from from taking a substance like this, even kind of glimpsing this mind at large or primary consciousness that that can still be something that uh you know has a ripple effect on the the rest of our our lives mm -hmm. says quote the man who comes back through the door in the wall will never be quite the same as the man who went out he will be wiser but less cocksure happier but less self-satisfied humbler in acknowledging his ignorance yet better equipped to understand the relationship of words to things of systematic reasoning to the unfathomable mystery which it tries forever in vanity to comprehend. Yeah, so kind of t tapping into, again, a much larger pool and realizing how little you know as this drop in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. The, the, that's the kind of humbling experience I think he's talking about. Yes, yeah. yes, cool. Well, this was awesome. This was so much fun. Yes, thanks again, <laughs> yeah. Zach. This was great for me too. Yeah. Everything about it, the fact, you know, reading that piece and... Uh, the way it, it happened to correlate with what I was doing yeah, so perfectly because so I well. finished it like yeah. this morning. Exactly. And yeah. I selfishly got the sneak peek of the entire <laughs> yes, model. And right. This was cool that we got to share some of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. On the podcast. Too. Yeah. You heard it first. Sweet. Well, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you again, Zach. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or scroll down and write us a review or give us a rating. All that stuff helps, so thanks for doing that in advance. If you would like to get in touch with me or to hear about what's coming up next on the podcast, visit unpackingideas.com forward slash podcast. And finally, if you would like to hear more from my guest Nikki and to see what she's up to, check out her LinkedIn page. I included it in the show notes. And there you can find all the interesting stuff that she's been getting up to studying consciousness out in California. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next episode.